Okay, so uh, if you did not get a handout, they're on the back table there. You can go ahead and grab one of those. As I said in my prayer, um, beginning 1 Peter this morning, so I'd like to welcome you to our new Sunday school class. Pastor Rick, Will, Desmond, and I will be co-teaching this class over the next four months. That will carry us through the end of the year. And we're very excited to be able to to go through this letter with you as we work through this verse by verse. At the beginning here, I want to think, why 1 Peter? Go a bunch of different ways and a bunch of different topics. And as we've thought through that, one of the things that kind of struck us about this has actually been on our minds for a while. Um, If you're familiar with this letter, you may know that the theme that you see running throughout it is one of persevering joyfully in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ from an ungodly society. And as the society in which we live becomes increasingly ungodly, the relevance of this letter for us becomes greater and greater. Now, all scripture we understand has relevance to all the people of God at all times, but there are seasons where that relevance is seen more clearly. And we think that this is one of those times, uh, which in all likelihood will be a time that remains for us as our culture and society continues to drift into more and more ungodliness. Now, to get a kind of a clearer picture here or a big picture of First Peter, I want to look at several passages, so we're going to start by just kind of reading some chunks out of this letter that I think will really help frame in our minds the point that Peter is seeking to address from the beginning to the end. So I'm going to ask some people to jump in and and help me read. The first uh, section that I want to read here is in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Okay, chapter 1, 3 through 7. Who'd be willing to read that for us? For us, thank you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed to the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, indeed, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Next section I want to look at is chapter 2. Verses 18 through 23. Who could read that for us? Okay, Jay, thanks. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, and mindful of God, one of their sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is what credit is it if when you sin? Good and suffer for it, you will this is a gracious thing to say now. But to this, 
those who have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was death, his deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued and trusted himself to him who judges justly. Okay, good. All right, next section I want to look at is chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Sabrina, thank you. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, very good. All right, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Read that for us. Lloyd, thanks. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Okay, and then chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Scott, you want to read that? Yeah. Thanks. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let me glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, and then the last section, I'll go ahead and read it. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, there's kind of a, a big picture, chunks of the letter as you read throughout. Somebody tell me, what theme do you see running throughout all of those passages that we just read? 
suffering in a godless generation. That's it, right? Suffering in a godless generation. Suffering as a Christian. And then also, how to think about that. How should we think about suffering as believers? And how to respond to that suffering that we are enduring. And that's a very pertinent issue for all the people of God. Right? I'm reminded of what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12 up here, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, So you live godly in an ungodly society, that persecution is going to manifest itself in some way towards you. Suffering for Christ in some measure, is a guarantee for all Christians. So we want to know how we should think now before more suffering comes, how we're to think when we are experiencing suffering, and what a godly response is to suffering for the sake of Christ. So now that we, we kind of get that big picture of 1 Peter, Let's think about some of the particulars here. What prompted Peter to write this letter when he did? Well, apparently he knew that these various trials and suffering that these believers were experiencing and would experience, as you've probably, you can relate to this in your own life, it could cause them to waver in their faith. That the enemy may seek to use this in their lives to cause them to walk away from Christ, that perhaps they misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. So Peter tells us his reason for writing what he did, when he did, at the end of the letter. Look at chapter 5, verse 12, as Peter brings this letter to a close. He says this, By, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Why does he have to remind them to stand firm in it? Because that persecution could cause them to waver and to walk away from something that might not bring as much suffering in their lives. So Peter wants to remind these brothers and sisters that this is what it looks like to be a recipient of the grace of God and that they must stand firm in this grace that they have received no matter the cost. Whatever the cost is here, it will be shown to be just a blip on the radar screen of glory that we're about to enter into. And it's going to work to that end. Somehow going to enhance the glory that we're going to walk into on that day. So, so he really seeks to comfort and assure them that being a recipient of God's grace often at times means, and in various ways, being at odds with this world as they continue to walk in the other direction. So with that, kind of just that brief introduction there, I want to look this morning at these first two verses in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 in 1 Peter 1. Scripture says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Now, that is a theologically rich salutation, right? So it's like, hey, guys, this is Peter. Let me tell you what's going on and how you should respond. I mean, just this thing is packed uh, with just glorious truths. So I want to just kind of start working through that. I tried to kind of break that down for you there on your notes so that you could kind of take some notes in each section that we, that we look at there, okay? So starting right here with the first word, Peter. I want to say a ton about this, but we're probably familiar with Peter as one of the original 12 apostles that Jesus chose to be with him in his ministry while he was physically present here on this earth. I want you to see also how Peter describes himself. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, where Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and then notice this, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. You see this aspect that Peter brings out that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So here we're listening to a man who walked with Jesus in his ministry and saw firsthand the sufferings that Jesus endured. That's going to take on great significance as we move through this letter together. You've probably seen that in some of the sections that we read where there's a pointing back to Jesus Christ and what he suffered on behalf of his people and how that's the path that we have been given as well. But in, back in ver, verse 1 of chapter 1, after Peter says, Peter, and then he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means he's an authorized spokesman. It's an authorized spokesman speaking on behalf of Jesus. He's a representative of Jesus Christ who has been sent by him to instruct, encourage, and strengthen these believers in the midst of their trials. And then as we look further here in verse 1, we see who it is that's being written to. And the recipients are described as this, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the believers that Peter is writing to here are located in Roman provinces at that time in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So you probably see a map of that if you look in the back of your, your Bible, but you'll just see that that is what that area entails, these believers that were living in these Roman provinces. But more than that, I want to look at how Peter describes these believers right at the beginning here. Elect exiles of the dispersion. One thing that you're going to notice as we work our way through this letter is how often you'll see Old Testament quotes or allusions throughout Peter's writing. And here is one of them right at the beginning. Elect exiles of the, of the dispersion. Israel was often described by God as being his chosen or his elect people. And they were a people who were dispersed, who were scattered from their homeland due to their sin. And this, this term dispersion was used to refer to the Jewish population living outside of Israel since the Babylonian exile. So the question that we want to ask here is, okay, is, is Peter 
using, the, uh, using this phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion here, to literally refer only to Jewish converts who have been misdisplaced, or is he using this term metaphorically in a broader context to describe who the people of God are, both believing Jews and Gentiles, and how they are living in this world. And I would say that this, that the better understanding of this is the latter of these two, that Peter has in mind the true people of God, which is all believers in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, and he's describing their status in this world. A couple of things bring me to that conclusion there. Uh, first, I want you to see how Peter begins the letter and how he ends it. So he, he starts with this language, elect exiles of the dispersion. And then look how he ends it here in chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Does Peter literally mean Babylon as in the ancient city of Babylon that we see back in the Old Testament? The answer to that is no, because that city no longer existed. It was in ruins at that point here. What you see Peter doing is he's drawing upon the Old Testament tradition and usage where Babylon represents those opposed to God and his people. When you get into the book of Revelation in chapter 17 and 18, you hear the same language being used. Babylon the great has fallen, right? Babylon was the center of opposition to God's people in the latter part of the Old Testament. And I want you to see this with me. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. And I'm going to read a couple of passages from this. You may see a heading there at the top of uh, Isaiah 13. says, The Judgment of Babylon. I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to drop down to verses 9 through 11 here. So it says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then he goes on here. I'm going to pick up at verse 9. Behold... The day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And then notice what Isaiah says here. Okay, he's speaking specifically about Babylon, but you also see the representation that Babylon had in verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Now go over with me to chapter 14, starting in verse 3, and you might see a subtitle there where it says, Israel's remnant taunts Babylon. I'm going to read that section there, starting at verse 3 through verse 11. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which 
you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Notice how Babylon is described here. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. That that just speaks to the domination that Babylon had at that time. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders, and then notice this, of the earth. And it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Wow. That, you go into Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, and you're going to hear a very similar description to how Babylon is described there. So it's a real city that really oppressed the people of God in the Old Testament, but as it works its way throughout the New Testament, it's used as a picture of all opposition to God. Now, think about Peter's time. Peter's writing this letter from Rome. What was the center of opposition to the people of God during the time of Peter? Rome. Okay? So Peter, when he goes to the end uh, end of his letter and says, she who is at Babylon greets you, he's not speaking literally of that city, he's speaking of Rome. Rome was the world-dominating force at that time, oppressing the people of God. Peter's writing to believers who are in Roman provinces, who are under that oppression. Now, that oppression manifested itself in different ways as you work your way throughout church history. During this time, that oppression was not full-scale against all all Christians. There were pockets of persecution that were breaking out against Christians. Nero was in power at that time. If you're familiar with Nero, you know he was pretty ruthless. And there would come a time where it was more of a worldwide persecution against Christians. But it wasn't so during this time. But there were pockets where the people of God refused to bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. They would say, Jesus is Lord. And that got you into a lot of trouble when you started talking like that. Even if you were the best citizen in your province, doing everything you could to better those who were around you. So those who are of the dispersion, who are living as exiles in this world, are all believers, which includes us. That's the first reason I think Peter was not simply writing to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout this region. But the second reason, which I think for me is far more compelling than the first for why Peter is writing to all believers and not just Jewish believers, is because of of what is actually said about these believers throughout Peter's letter. And I want to just cite a couple of passages here that I think refer to this. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 
where Peter encourages these believers. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The ignorance in which these believers formerly lived, which manifested itself in lustful living, which is what the word passions means, typically describes how the Gentiles lived, not how the Jews lived. The Jews were not known for following after the passions of the flesh as a people. And additionally, when we read a bit further here in chapter 1, look at verses 17 and 18. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the, notice how this is described, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Again, this is not terminology that is used to describe the Jewish people. They would hardly be described as those ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. I think an example of this is seen in what Paul says about the Jews in Romans 9 and 10, which I have up here on the screen. If somebody can read that for us, Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Okay, so that, that's one example of how the Jews are described here, right? Those, the, the blessings have come to them. They've had the word of God revealed to them, right? It wasn't feudal ways that they were ransomed from. Chapter 10, I think Paul illustrates this as well. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the, the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Right? So these were a people who, as a whole, were given to the things of God, but were missing Christ in that. So the Jewish people of Paul and Peter's day were described in these terms that we see here in Romans 9 and 10, and not in the way that Peter is describing his audience, but the passage that I think really kind of closes the argument on who's Peter's readers were is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4, which I think it was Lloyd that read earlier. But I want you to see this again. I'm just going to pick up here in verse 3 in 1 Peter 4 and read verses 3 and 4, which says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't, don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The Gentiles would not be surprised at all that the Jews didn't join them in this debaucherous lifestyle. But they would be very surprised when their fellow Gentile abandoned that way of life for a life of holiness. That would have been very surprising. Audrey. I have a question. I yep. In verse 17, yep. where it says, and you call on him as father who judges in question, uh, and it goes on, and it says, without yep. the time of your exile. Yes. Well, 
wouldn't that be the exile of the Jewish people? You're right. You got here a little bit late, and I, I kind of went through that aspect of it. I was, I was defending why Peter uses Old Testament terminology to refer to all believers, both believing Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Yes. Can I just say something? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On the way to church this morning, Deborah and I were listening to Michael Lloyd-Jones, and he had the verse 13, therefore gird up the minds of your mind. Yes. And he was talking about living in the godless generation, mm -hmm. how it's so important that we think, yes. we use our intellect, and we're not just Christians who think, oh, everything's going to be fine, yeah. everything's good. We have to use our minds. Amen. Just goes right back exactly to everything you teach. Yeah, amen, amen. I'm going to listen to that. Thank you for bringing that up. Great. Yeah, amen. Um, so, so for me, I think it's clear that the elect exiles are those who have had their citizenship transferred from this world to the next, from earth to heaven. So they're they're to live here as those who make it clear that they don't belong here, but belong to another world, the world that is to come. They're foreigners here. And I think Peter illustrates this idea uh, very clearly in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This, this status that we have been given now as believers, we're exiles here on this earth, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. So I think that helps me to think through who the recipients of this letter are, both believing Jews and Gentiles. Also, the regions that are being written to are predominantly Gentile, so I think that's another uh, persuasive argument as well. So you'll notice in verse 2 as we move on here in chapter 1, you have these three prepositional phrases that Peter uses. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, which I think is one preposition kind of broken up into what can seem like two, but I think they go together, and I'll explain why when we get to that section. You can see that aspect. When you read through this, you want to keep all of those points connected. They're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God Father. They're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. They're elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, why is Peter inspired to include all of this here? Right? When, I, when I read through the scriptures and I think through, that was a lot to say in a salutation, just to, just to kind of get the ball rolling here, right? Why? You know, if you just read it, let's just say it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you feel like anything was missing from that? No. Just read that and be like, no, it's sound salutation. It's a nice greeting to him. But he just packs in these three prepositional phrases which are loaded with theological truth. 
Why does he do that? Well, only God knows, and I'm not God. So that's not my answer. But I'm going to take a, a crack at it. I think he does this because of the condition that these believers are facing. Remembering that these believers are suffering for the sake of Christ and need to be encouraged helps me at least to understand why. That God wants to build this foundation of encouragement and assurance underneath these believers right away. So I want to take these prepositional phrases one by one and work through those. First, we see that they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the word that needs greatest explanation, I think, in this phrase, in order for this phrase to be properly understood, is foreknowledge. That word foreknowledge carries with it this intimate covenantal language. And we can see this when we look at how the root word, which is knowledge in the Greek, gnosis, is used in various places in Scripture. And I'm going to just throw a few of these up here for you that you can check out. Genesis 4.1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Okay? So that knowing there means more than just a simple, I know my wife. Okay? Because we see what the result is. She conceives and brings forth Cain. So there's this intimate covenantal language that's associated with this word new. You're going to see this as we go throughout the rest of these as well. Amos 3, verses 1 and 2. Can somebody read that for us? Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Okay. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Doesn't God know everyone? Yes. But what he's speaking of is this intimate covenantal language, relationship that he had with the people of Israel. Okay? There's a depth to this that's beyond this just simple knowing as in an intellectual understanding or awareness of somebody. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, notice this, he is known by God. Now, that's a really helpful passage, I think, there. If anyone loves God, okay, this person over here, he loves God. I know something about that person, what he's known by God. And that knowing is he's in an intimate covenantal relationship with the Lord. Okay? And then Romans 8:29, Paul uses the same language pretty much here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he foreknew. Those whom he, I would argue this word carries with it the weight of those whom he loved before. Before what? Before the foundation of the world when he elected them unto himself those he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So I think what Peter's driving at here, really what God is driving at, is this. Your status as an elect exile in this world that is hostile to you 
is based on, is according to the eternal purposes of God, where before the foundation of the world, he set his electing love upon you. And the reason that you're described as an exile here is because God elected you to be with him in the new heavens and new earth ultimately. And so these believers are suffering for this reason, because they belong to God. They're foreign to this world because they belong to God. They're outcasts in this world because they belong to God. And what a great encouragement that would be to hear right at the beginning. You're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This isn't God just intervening right now in this moment in time and saying, "Uh uh-oh, my people are in trouble, I better do something. This was planned before everything got started. You're kept, you're secure in Christ. I've chosen you before the foundation of the world. You're considered an exile here because of my doing. All of this was planned by God before any of this began. So I think that's a massive encouragement as Peter gets his letter started to these believers. And then this second phrase that he used to describe these believers and us, that they, we, are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. So so notice the order here of these first two prepositional phrases, right? God the Father chose us, he elected us in love before the foundation of the world to be his own. And that election, which we could not see, did not know about, was made evident by the sanctification of the Spirit. That is to say, by the Holy Spirit setting us apart. He set us apart from unholiness to holiness when we were born again. And what's interesting here is that our status as exiles comes because of this reality, that we've been sanctified by the Spirit, that we've been set apart by the Spirit. We were all formally of this world, going along with it in our ungodliness, until the Spirit awakened us to truth. As we look uh, at 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15 again, as obedient children... Don't be conformed to who you used to be. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's who you used to be. You used to walk in ungodliness. You used to walk in an unholy way. And then verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Right? So that used to describe who you were, it doesn't describe you anymore. And then uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, I won't read that again since we've already read it a couple times, but it speaks to that same end. This is what you used to do. You used to be engaged in these practices, drinking parties and lawless idolatry and all these things, but not any longer, right? Now you're separated from that. So rather than being discouraged, which can often happen, right? You don't like to be that odd man out in your workplace, Right? Yeah, that, that's the weirdo over there. <laughs> right? That guy. None of us likes that naturally. We want to be included. I don't want to be excluded from things. 
So rather than being discouraged that we're looked at as foreigners, that we're treated as outcasts, what Peter is helping us to see is here we ought to rejoice and be massively encouraged because how we're viewed now is a testimony to our new status. And we have this new status because we have been set apart by the Spirit of God. Your life is now characterized by a life of holiness where your life used to be characterized by ungodliness. You're on a path of righteousness now where you were once on a path of unrighteousness. So don't be discouraged, weak believers. The various trials that you're going through, you're going through them because you've been set apart by the Spirit of God. That you're now walking in holiness by His grace. And that's a beautiful thing, not something to be discouraged about. And then I want to look finally at this last prepositional phrase here. That we're elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, the second half of this phrase can seem perplexing. I really was wrestling through this. Now, if it just said for obedience to Jesus Christ, I can make sense out of that a little bit more. But what's this and for sprinkling with his blood? It really opened up for me as I continued to study and see what Peter is more than likely referencing in this statement that he makes here. Peter is reaching back to the confirming of the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses in Exodus 24. And I want to read with you a few verses from Exodus 24 so that we can see the parallel that Peter appears to be making here and we can see how massively encouraging this last prepositional phrase is here in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Okay, so I have... Exodus 24 up here. You can turn to it in your Bibles if you'd like as well. Um, I want to go ahead and read this. Listen for the terminology that's used here, especially towards the end of this, verses 1 through 8, and see how it parallels what Peter's saying here in verse 2 of his letter. Can somebody read that for us? is 
So hopefully you can see, especially there in verses 7 and 8, notice how the people respond here, right? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. People testify, we're going to be obedient. And what happens after they confess that? Moses takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What we should notice here is that the people promise to obey all the words that God has commanded them. And as they respond to that, God seals the covenant by having Moses sprinkle half of the blood from the sacrifice on the altar, which was God's affirmation that he will uphold his part of the covenant. And the other half he has Moses sprinkle on the people, which was done after the people affirmed that they would be obedient. So this is a typical covenantal ceremony. The two parties affirming that they will uphold their covenantal responsibilities. Now, we know that Israel did not and could not fulfill the responsibility that they had promised. They didn't keep all the words that the Lord had spoken in the Old Covenant, and we see from the Old Testament how disastrous the consequences of their disobedience was. So where's the hope for those in the New Covenant? Where's the hope that we can obey and not fail like the majority who were in Israel. Well, the hope, amen. That, that, that's, the, that's the hope, right? The hope is in this. Listen, the covenant that we have been brought into generates the obedience that it commands. That's the nature of this covenant. You were elected for obedience to Jesus Christ. That same spirit that set you apart from being unholy to being holy when he regenerated you is the same spirit that causes you to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. First by obeying the command to repent and believe and then from there continuing to walk in gospel obedience to Jesus. But what about when we fail to obey? Will we incur the wrath of God like many in Israel did for their disobedience? And the answer to that is no. But why? Because in this covenant, as Audrey was saying, Christ has already bore the wrath of God for every last sin you have committed and will commit. To be sprinkled with His blood means the wrath of God that each of us deserved has been satisfied in Christ. Having been brought into this covenant by grace, we stay in it by grace. Which is why Peter says at the end of his letter, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. You can't go anywhere else. Anywhere else leads to judgment. If you walk away from this. And listen, how encouraging these first words are that Peter's inspired as the salutation to this glorious letter. 
It's going to lay out some commands for them. Here's, here's what you ought to do, and here's the hope that you have. The same spirit that regenerated you is the one that will cause you to walk in this. And when you see the nature of the new covenant that we read in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and you see this aspect that God makes us alive and he causes us to walk in his rules and to be careful to obey his commands. So he just brings this massive encouragement as he lays out these three prepositional phrases here to these believers. And, and just, I mean, think about the inexhaustibility of the word of God. You just get this one sentence and it is packed with meaning and encouragement and hope that God is for us and not against us. And what that means when you think about the persecution you endure for the sake of Christ and how that can discourage you and cause you to be fearful. God just comes alongside you and just bolsters your faith with these glorious promises that he has given. Peter wraps up this salutation the way many New Testament letter salutations close, and that is with a, a greeting of grace and peace to the recipients. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And, and we shouldn't pass over that statement too quickly lest we miss the blessing that God intends us to derive from it. It's essentially a prayer asking God, that his grace be given mightily to these saints and that his peace would guard them in the midst of their adversity. It really echoes, I think, what Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 33. As Jesus is concluding his time here on earth with his disciples, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation. The, the readers of the recipients of this letter that Peter wrote understood that very well. And Jesus says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. There's a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of every conflict that you endure for the sake of Christ. And it comes by means of grace. So with that introduction, I pray that our hearts would be positioned now to get into the meat of this letter, as if that wasn't meaty enough, just the salutation here, and that we would hear further what God has done for us in Christ and how we ought to live in a world that is hostile to us, which Desmond, Lord willing, will begin to unpack next Sunday. Amen? All right. Any any thoughts here as we uh, wrap this up? Norm. So as we can see storms of persecution on the horizon, especially when it comes to the uh, LBDQC whatever agenda, yeah. uh, it's not just that we're studying this letter as it was then. That's right. But it's, a, it's a image of what's coming to us. That's so right. As we enjoy the liberty that we have right now, Yep. Talk over at Pastor Jack, I think it was last week, that there's going to be days where we probably won't be able to be in this building, it's going to be at home. Right. Um, it's very encouraging, and I like the, the way you explain the prepositions, uh, that it is highly encouraging. So yeah. when we get agitated and in turmoil because of whatever happens, simultaneously, yeah. we have the joy, the peace, yeah. you just 
Right, exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it was it was really hard actually to stop at verse two. I just wanted to launch into verse three because it just well I won't. Let me, let me just stop. Okay, let me let me stop. Because it's just oh man, it just you just take off. You just you, we've already taken off, but now you're just way up in grace and man, the greatness of God and his keeping of his people. So let me stop there, else I'm gonna start teaching that lesson as well. Okay. We're going to teach like Pastor Jack teaches, two yeah. verses a week. That's right, exactly. Yeah, well, we've tried to, uh, we have more of a time schedule, so we're kind of forced to get through this letter in, in the next four months, but it'll be, it'll be good. We're going to give it sufficient time, and as Norm said, we just pray it's going to be such a great encouragement for us as we all are dealing with suffering and persecution for Christ on, on some level, and if we're not, we will be. Um, so, well, that's encouraging. Yeah. Yes. To the head into the sanctuary, Father, thank you for uh, this time together to to just begin to open this letter and um, just to see the glory and the encouragement, the strength, the edification that you would have us to derive from this, Lord. Um, so much that we need to to learn and apply in our lives, Father. Thankful for your your patience with us, your kindness to us, Lord, and all of our weakness and our strength. And thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path that guides us and directs us and helps us to walk in a manner that is honoring to you, empowered by your Holy Spirit so that you get all the glory for all that is accomplished in us and through us, Lord. So I just pray that you set our hearts now and even as we go into the sanctuary this morning, Lord, Uh, Give us attentiveness. Help us to hear the word of God. Let us be at the ready. Guard our hearts from distractions, Lord, and all the things that are going on in each of our lives, Lord, and how easily we can be distracted by random thoughts that come and miss glorious truths that you intend for us to have. So please help us. We pray. We're weak, we're needy, and we plead for grace that you would help for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.